0: Well, thank you all for coming, and I appreciate that nice reception. My scripture text for today and tomorrow is a passage familiar to many of you, but I may apply it in a different way. I'll read part of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. You probably remember the face-off in chapter 18, Elijah, versus 450 prophets of Baal. The prophets hop around all morning calling for Baal. In the afternoon, God sends down fire to burn up Elijah's offering and show that Elijah is telling the truth. The crowd supports Elijah. Nevertheless, Ahab and Jezebel still hold the governmental power and Elijah heads off into the desert, depressed and almost suicidal. So here's the passage, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. God tells Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Think about it, a low whisper. Most of us here today, I suspect, rejoiced in last year's Supreme Court opinion that liberated the United States from a half century of Roe v. Wade. It was a great wind. It was an earthquake. Since then, we've had a a pandemic of bad news. Here are just three of the difficult developments. First, the number of abortions has probably not declined very much. Tragically, frightened women carrying unborn children have headed to blue states for abortions. Big corporations have sometimes paid their transportation costs. Some of you are familiar with discussions of structural racism. We have structural abortionism with a lot of government groups and corporations involved in that. Other women have swallowed abortion pills in the privacy of their own apartments, all alone, all apart from crisis pregnancy centers or other groups that could help them. So there's a lot of sadness around. And second, the federal government does stand very vigilantly, firmly, on the side of abortion. The Justice Department says the Postal Service can deliver abortion pills to women in states that have made abortion illegal. The Food and Drug Administration says drug stores can sell abortion pills, and so on. Structural abortionism. And then here comes strike three. As some of you know, uh, K in baseball is the symbol for a strikeout. So there have been referenda votes in red states like Kansas and Kentucky. There have been pouch-outs, punch-outs for the abortion side. My old newspaper, the Boston Globe, had on Monday an article glorifying the architect of victory for the abortion side in those elections. Rachel Sweet works the churches in which congregants say I don't like abortion, but I'm worried about a religious tyranny being imposed. And that's a reaction the pro-life side needs to ponder. I've I've been involved in this battle for 40 years, ever ever since my wife Susan and I moved to Austin, Texas. I went there to teach at the University of Texas. I suspect God wanted us there so my wife could start the Austin Crisis Pregnancy Center. I mean, she brought me into the pro-life movement. And over the years, I've gone deep into abortion history and last year brought the publication of this book, The Story of Abortion in America. And those stories in it, I hope, are interesting in themselves. They also show the truth of what Justice Samuel Alito wrote in the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Alito said abortion had never been deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, in their dissenting opinion, disagreed. They said abortion, although not constitutionally required, was deeply rooted. And they also gave a backup, that even if abortion through all of pregnancy was not accepted, it was, they said, during the first four months it was accepted, before quickening, when a woman can feel the baby move. So, This book is full of stories, street-level stories, not just sweet level rhetoric, sweet level stories, street-level stories that, that disprove, I think, those assertions. But they also show that America never had a good old days where there were no abortions. It didn't start with Roe v. Wade. It started a long time before. I ran across one Virginia abortion in 1629, almost four centuries ago. I don't have much information about that, but the Annals of Maryland, good records, include lots of information about three abortions in the colony that occurred during the decade starting in 1652. In the interest of time, I'll tell you just about one of them that occurred in 1656. This abortion grew out of a dispute between men and women about dogs and dishwashers. Lots of guys, well, let their dogs lick the plates before they go into a mechanical dishwasher. Um, in those days, of course, there were no mechanical dishwashers. The uh, husbands sometimes were dishwashers or the wives. And let me stipulate, as a guy, that it's perfectly healthy to have dogs lick plates before they go into the mechanical dishwasher. In fact, my oldest son, when he was 12 years old, wrote a, did a science fair project called uh, Dog Spit, the Wonder Drug. So, the male-female split I've observed concerning dogs licking plates goes back to when the only dishwashers were human. So I can understand better the female point of view at that time. In 1656, Anne Brooke did not like a dog licking out a pail which would be used again to carry corn or milk. So she decided to wash the pail. Her husband, Francis Brooke, said dog licking without washing was fine. They argued he was a brutal guy, he broke a cane over her back. And everything went downhill from there, especially when Anne became pregnant. Francis Brooke did not want to have a baby and he became the first guy on the historical records to pressure a woman into having an abortion. Uh, he chased her, he beat her with a large pair of wooden tongs outside, where a neighbor, at least, was able to see what was going on. And this brave neighbor, Elizabeth Claxton, intervened. According to the legal record, she told Brooke that you do that, you might kill your unborn child. And she asked Brooke, these were her words in the historical record, do you long to be hanged? And let me repeat that, Elizabeth Clackson, seeing the pregnancy in danger, asked if Francis Brooke wanted to be hanged. It seems she took the humanity of that unborn child very seriously as other people then too. Brooke replied, I don't care if she does miscarry, if she's with child, it's none of mine. So Brooke then forced his woman, his wife, to drink some sort of potion and abort that causes abortions. Their unborn child did die, either from the potion or as a result of the beating. There was a midwife, Rose Smith, who saw the unborn child and described him as a man-child, about three months old, and it was all bruised on one side of it. So, midwife Smith and Elizabeth Claxton both testified at a provincial court trial of Brooke for murder of a man-child about three months old. I, I won't provide a spoiler here about what eventually happened in this particular case. The important takeaway is this, colonial Americans saw abortion as murder. And they viewed the unborn child as a human being even before quickening. This unborn child was three months in gestation, quickening coming at the end of the fourth month or early in the fifth. So that was then, colonial times and lots of other stories I could go into. But let me move on now into the half century from 1821 to 1871. Abortion surged as cities grew more young people became free from the constraints, but also the protections of village life where parents and neighbors were watching them. And then there were some ministers who violated their oaths and violated young women in their congregation. Amy Rogers in 1817, Ephraim Avery 15 years later later, and so on. So sinful preachers, sad to say, are not a new phenomenon. And one of the results of that is in the 19th century, every state, Passed laws against abortion. But those laws often were not enforced. I'll give you a prime example. Abortion was illegal in New York in 1846, but abortionists bribed or blackmailed police and judges. The most famous abortionist, Madame Rostel, advertised openly. The city's major newspapers profited from her ads and they protected her. One newspaper that did not take her ads, the New York Express, said, those who are most guilty are bound by their fears to protect her. Names and dates and circumstances are all recorded. Her downfall would shake society to its very center. In a word, Madame Ristel is a woman of genius who understands her position and knows how to use its advantages. There was another newspaper that did, did not take ads from abortionists. There was a sensational paper, the National Police Gazette. It, it, it was free, therefore, to call Rastel a monster who speculates with human life with as much cruelness as if she were engaged in a game of chance. The newspaper described a Rostell abortion in which the aborted baby kicked several times after it was put into the bowl. And the Gazette did not see abortion as a victimless crime just because the victims, the corpses, were small. It said Rustelle might drown in the blood of her victims that each but yield a drop. Now remember, New York had a law making it a crime to give a pregnant woman any drug for bringing about an abortion or for using any tool, any instrument that would cause abortion. But the law was not enforced, sometimes because of bribery, sometimes because of blackmail, but it wasn't. Massachusetts had a similar law. There were some district attorneys who tried to enforce it. There were 32 abortion trials between 1849 and 1857. Guess how many convictions came out of those trials? Zero. There was a uh, medical jurisprudence textbook that was widely used in 1855. It said, it's quoting here, it's easier to pass laws against abortion than to make them work. Because what happened in trials, usually one or two jurors would hold out. And sometimes if the jury was unanimous, all 12, there were bribed judges who overturned verdicts. Abortions were making a lot of money from abortions. Very often they paid half of their profits to police and judges and others to protect them. So that's the way it worked for a long time. Pass a law, hurrah, try to enforce it, bah. Rustelle was an abortionist for 40 years, from 1838 to 1878. She did go to prison once for a year, and she received special, almost luxurious treatment there. She came out saying news reports of her trials were easily worth $100,000 to her in advertising, and that's, that's millions in today's currency. She lived in a grand mansion on Fifth Avenue. Those of you who are in New York City, if you know, if you know uh, that avenue, you know where St. Patrick's Cathedral is, she lived in the block just north of the church that was being built, St. Patrick's Cathedral. So again, I'll skip the spoiler. No, no, I won't skip the spoiler here. Um, when, When Marcel was 65, she began to wander the richly carpeted halls of her mansion, kind of like Lady Macbeth saying, out, out, damn spot. I mean, she was wringing her hands and, you know, God's whisper got to her. She was bemoaning her situation, and I would like to say she crossed over to the pro-life side, as some abortions have done recently, but that did not happen, then she committed suicide on the day a trial was supposed to begin. I'd like to say the law closed down abortion practices, but that rarely happened, even after all the sensation with her death. Juries had to be unanimous. There was one Chicago doctor around 1900 who said, it's not possible to get 12 men together and in those days the jurors tended to be males, it is not possible to get 12 men together without at least one of them being personally responsible for the downfall of a woman, or at least interested in getting her out of difficulty. So it was really hard to put an abortionist in jail. Big cities had hundreds of abortionists. Um, Each year, I've gone through the records, each year maybe one or two went to jail, usually for a short time. There was one doctor in 1912 who went city by city in the US He wrote that there were thousands of abortions over the years in Washington, D.C., but only three convictions, not enough to do more than to slow down slightly the traffic to abort. In New York City, abortion was rampant, but in some years, not a single indictment, and so forth. Now, does that difficulty in prosecution mean that abortion was deeply rooted in American history, as the three Supreme Court dissenters wrote? Nothing I've seen in American history shows that there was shame associated with abortion, so women never wanted to talk about it. And there was our deeply rooted history of innocent until proven guilty, and that worked to protect abortionists. You know, the law isn't a jury says guilty or innocent, a law, uh, the jury can say guilty or not guilty. It doesn't necessarily mean innocent, it means not proven. And women who had abortions and survived did not want their shame exposed publicly. They almost always, refused to testify. And there were some women who had abortions who, who died. Early in the 19th century, it was like playing Russian roulette with a bullet in the chamber. As the century went on, people started learning about antiseptic procedures and there were fewer maternal deaths. There were, of the two patients, there was one who died and one who almost always survived, especially once you come to the 1930s and the 1940s, the invention of, invention of penicillin. Uh, there were very few women who died in the course of abortions, but of course each time the child would die. But jurors had sympathy for people they knew and cared about. Rape and incest then is now probably made up only about 1% of abortions, but people often opposed exceptions in those cases. Poverty was much greater before the 1960s than there is now and people had sympathy with women with for women with large families who do not want one more and then as now opinion on abortion, if you just ask are you pro-life or are you pro choice you don't get a, a really good reading, there are a lot of people who are emotionally torn in the middle. And that was the case then, that was the case now and so the laws were there but they were rarely enforced and each large city had abortionists. Uh, often one became particularly known tonight and tomorrow night in, in Brock Hall 118, 120, 122. I'll tell stories about some of them for the 60 I, students, I guess, who are signed up for the, for the rest public of class. But there's room for others among you. If you're not signed up, just, just come by and I'll give you snapshots of different abortionists and why they did. it. I'll also be playing lots of videos, a movie from 1916, a part of a movie from 1916, uh, the, the famous, uh, a film from 1984, short film, 30 minutes, uh, uh, about abortion, Uh, a television show from 1970, just ways you can get a sense of what public opinion was like and what people being told throughout the 20th century. So I am going to, I'm talking tonight, today I'm talking tomorrow, uh, tonight and tomorrow and Saturday morning I'm going to try to not talk a whole lot, but show things and get some discussion going and see for and so forth. Um, I'll mention about uh, but one example of, of the way this worked, as far as enforcement. Uh, there was a woman, Nez Burns, she was destitute after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. I imagine her like Scarlett O'Hara in Gone With Wind vowing, I'll never be hungry again. And so from the 1910s to the 1950s, she performed and got rich, performing about 50,000 abortions in San Francisco and Oakland. She, she had a mansion with a, with a walk-in closet that had slots for 320 hats. She purchased diamond collars for her two pet Pomeranians. I mean, she was out for the money. There were other abortionists who were out for other reasons, but she was out for the money. In 1946, there was an ambitious, ambitious district, district attorney, Edmund Pat Brown, who went after her. He, he persevered through one trial where the jury was 11 to one against her, but juror 12 would not budge. He tried again, again a hung journey, third time he got a conviction, and she went to prison for two years. Then she came out and resumed aborting. She invested half of her revenue in payoffs and bribes, $6,000 per week to downtown officials, $12,000 per month to San Francisco police, $5,000 to every politician running for office, and she died in bed at age 89. She had a statue of a little boy in front of her house she left instructions that her abortionist tools should be put in the casket with her. She said, I relied on them. They are what got me everywhere. Um, And she also got Pat Pat Brown everywhere. The trial publicity helped him become governor of California and later Brown's son became governor. Um, I'll tell you one other story. Uh, Ruth Barnett, uh, she performed about 40,000 abortions in Portland between 1918 and 1948. And when she was young and in love, She had sex with a guy named Frank, who then told her, you got yourself that way, now get yourself out of it. And how do I know I'm responsible? Ward said thousands of times by thousands of guys. And Ruth Barnett later wrote, he turned and hurried away, I never saw him again. For years I hated Frank. Many of my patients had the same implacable hatred for the man responsible, so she took revenge. And she had a daughter, Maggie, who in the 1930s became the in her own words, the wildest, wickedest, drunkenest student at the University of Oregon. And Ruth Barnett aborted six of Maggie's children, her own grandchildren, and she made lots of money, paid lots of bribes, stayed out of jail. So anyway, there are stories like that. Um, um, Do we have time for one more? uh, Yeah, Um, Edgar Keener, African-American, he became the best-known baby-killer in Detroit. He went to medical school in the 1930s, he wanted to become a regular doctor, but a local medical society denied him membership, and a hospital denied him admitting privileges. He got really mad, Uh, he read a lot, he joined a Marxist group, the Socialist Workers' Party. He probably did about 30,000 abortions until 1956. And that year, finally, four of his patients for lots of individual reasons, agreed to testify against him, he received a 30-month prison sentence. He got out after 14 months by performing an abortion on the daughter of a leading prison official. Anyway, I'll, I'll talk about some others tonight and so forth, and I've got to say that regardless of the new law and laws and so forth, a generation from now, probably others will tell stories about the abortions that occur in the 2020s and the 2030s, despite the Supreme Court's disavowal of Roe v. Wade. Now, again, I'm not saying that the court's recent decision, I'm not saying the pro-life laws that's, that will be upheld in some states are useless. They can apply pressure, they will save some lives, but in big blue states like California, New York and Illinois, abortion will still be rampant. In red states, pills will do their damage. In my city of Austin, Texas, I, I would be absolutely amazed if a jury of 12 randomly selected men and women would ever find an abortionist guilty. So that's the bad news. Enforcement of laws is no panacea. But I do want to remind you of the astounding things God tells Elijah as chapter 19 of 1 Kings Continued. After Elijah hears the low whisper, he tells God, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. And God tells Elijah, "Okay, head to Damascus, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu to be king over Israel. And that's remarkable because Hazael and Jehu are not good guys. Hazael, as we learn in Chapter 8 of Second Kings, will kill young Israelites and rip open their pregnant women. And Jehu will execute God's vengeance on Jezebel and on Ahab's descendants, but he'll continue worship of golden calves. But still, promotion of those sinful leaders in God's mysterious way was part of God's providential plan. And that's true in abortion history as well. Madame Ristel came under pressure in 1878 because of what a roguish reporter, a guy named William Augustus Doolittle, did in 1871. Doolittle had been a a congregational and Baptist pastor, but he didn't last long because he became sexually involved with the wife of a deacon. He lasted only a small time at two small newspapers because I suspect he was found in adultery there and had to get out of town. He changed his name to Augustus St. Clair and got a job at the New York Times. And there in 1871, he had his one shining moment. Here's the headline and subhead of his published, published, yeah, on August 23rd, 1871. The evil of the age, slaughter of the innocents, scenes described by eyewitnesses. And that became the most influential pro-life story in American history. St. Clair was soon caught in other lies. He was beaten up after another adulterous affair. But in 1871, God used St. Clair for his own purposes, as he used in biblical days Hazael and Jehu. So I want to leave you with this thought. Laws by themselves may seem like tornadoes or earthquakes, but sometimes they don't change much. They work on the supply of abortionists, but what about the demand for their services? Those of you who have taken economics, you know about laws of supply and demand, they're relevant here too. Abortion in the United States topped out at 1.6 million in 1992. You know, a horrendous figure three decades ago. During the next 25 years, we don't know about some of the recent statistics, but during the next 25 years, the number of abortions declined by almost 50%. The number in 2017 was still a horrendous 850,000. It's a big number, huge number, but that's still a lot of lives saved compared to 1.6 million. Now, why did that decline occur? It wasn't enforcement. There were some laws that operated at the margin, saved a few lives, but didn't do much under Roe v. Wade, you couldn't do much in laws. It wasn't enforcement, it wasn't the hurricane, it wasn't the earthquake, it wasn't the fire. I'm going to leave that question hanging and come back to it tomorrow, which will be Sort of the good news part of this of this two-part talk, and I hope you'll all come again. Um, I do want to mention that I'm on campus not just this week, but uh, but next week as well, since I'm teaching a short course in journalism. I see a couple of students over here, and thank you for coming here. But that means I'm in I'm in the dining hall for lunch and dinner just about every day next week and so forth. I'd enjoy sitting with some of you, hearing your stories. So. You know, after chapel today or lunch or tomorrow, just stop me sometime, we can set up a time for, for dining hall lunch or dinner. Uh, food, is, food is pretty good. Uh, I'm thankful to the faculty for taking me out for dinner at a restaurant downtown, which I do have to say was better than the dining hall, but that's hard to say. Um, and again, come, come to a Brock Hall, 118, 120, 122. Um, and I do promise not to talk all the time. I'll, I'll show things. Let me just close now with this plea. And then maybe if you can prepare, prepare yourself, even though we don't have the instrumentation, uh, maybe we can all sing the doxology. But here's what I would say as part of you know, my prayer. Basically, Lord, um, please whisper, not only to us, but to all the mothers and fathers of unborn children throughout this land, whisper to all the abortionists in Jesus' name, amen.